morning, everyone. How's it going? We're going to be continuing our series today on how God is using the story of Moses and the Exodus to reveal his glory, to reveal to us what he is like. Um, God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, not so that we would glorify Moses, um, but to give himself the glory to reveal things to us, that all the earth may know him and glorify him. You know, Moses was a great man of faith. The Bible has a lot of great things to say about Moses. We can learn a lot from his example, but at the end of the day, Moses was just a person, just like you and me. You know, he sinned, he had character flaws, and the only reason we even know about Moses is because God used him, and God preserved him and blessed him. So the focus in this series is, what is God revealing to us about himself through the Exodus story, through Moses' story, and then how does that impact us today? So to recap the story so far, last week we looked at Exodus chapter 3 and 4, where Moses is commissioned at the burning bush. There's a lot of things we saw about God in those chapters. We saw his holiness. We learned about his eternal nature. He revealed himself to be I am, this eternal God. But we focused on the fact that Moses, or that God is a promise keeper as he's speaking to Moses. He keeps his covenant. He refers over and over again to the covenant he made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And he's going to bring that about through the, the work he does in the Exodus story. And, and there was a contrast there that God was giving us. Right? Moses is just a man. He's just a person. He is unable to save Israel, but God can save Israel. God is the eternal I am, and he makes the difference. That's what we saw. So for us, you know, uh, what we talked about was we need to start moving from who am I? Because ultimately we are inadequate. We're not enough. So we need to stop asking the question, who am I? And instead ask the question, who are you, God? Who are you? Because that's what matters. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the plagues in Egypt and the escape of the Israelites from Egypt across the Red Sea. And the big idea, the big thing here that God is revealing to us is his power. There is no one like our God. He is the one true God. And what he's going to be revealing to us here is that he has power and sovereignty over all things, over nature, over history, and even over the human heart. And so what God is doing in bringing these plagues on Egypt is he is making his name known to the whole world. Only he can show these these great acts of power. And he's doing that both in his judgment against Pharaoh and Egypt and also in his mercy towards Israel. So when we left Moses, he's finished his conversation with God at the burning bush. He and Aaron have gone to Egypt and they go and meet with the, with the elders of Israel and let them know God is coming to, to deliver you, which is very exciting for them, obviously. After this in Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and for the first time they ask him to let the people go. But Pharaoh refuses. He refuses, and in retaliation, Pharaoh orders the taskmasters over the Israelites to stop giving them straw for the bricks that they are tasked to make as as slaves in Egypt. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know that much about brick making. So a quick lesson on ancient brick making. These bricks are made from clay. And so straw is important for two reasons. One, the straw helps the bricks dry out faster. So they're hardened in the sun faster. It also strengthens the clay, similar to how we would add rebar into concrete. It gives structure to the bricks to keep them from falling apart. So without straw, the work would go slower because they would dry a lot slower. And the Israelites would lose more bricks because they would crumble and break if they weren't careful. So this is just a ton more work for the Israelites not having straw. They need to go out and get it for themselves. 
in order to produ produce the bricks that Pharaoh wants. Because Pharaoh, he doesn't lower the quota. He wants the same amount of bricks, even though he doesn't give them straw. And similar to what we saw last week, this is setting up a contrast for us as the reader of scripture. Last week, we saw that Moses murders an Egyptian who is beating an Israelite. And the contrast that God was showing us there is that Moses can't save Israel. He can't even save one person without sinning, committing murder, just creating a whole mess. God can save Israel. Moses cannot. And so it's the same idea here. We're seeing a contrast. Here, the idea is this is great power on the part of Pharaoh. Egypt is the most powerful nation on earth at this point in history. They had a very powerful army. They had advanced technology. They had wealth. And so Pharaoh is arguably the most powerful human being on the planet at this moment of time. And he, he gives us this grand display of his power with just a word. He's able to impact the lives of thousands of people, making them worse in this case. And that's more power than any of us will ever have. He alters the lives of thousands of people, but... He is about to be exposed as just totally weak and helpless against the power of God. There's a contrast being drawn here. Because God is in no way threatened or worried about this show of force by Pharaoh. And God is just about to show how weak Pharaoh really is in comparison. So in Exodus chapter 6, God once again reminds Moses of the promise. Moses is a little rattled Pharaoh's rejection of his initial request. But God reminds Moses of the promise that he would bring the people out of Egypt. God is indeed a promise keeper, as we're about to see. So we're going to pick up the story now in Exodus chapter 7, as Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh again. And we're going to start in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. So if you remember from last week in chapter 4, this is one of the signs that God gave to Moses, told him to perform this sign so that uh, he'd be able to prove that he's coming in the name of God and that God is indeed working in this situation. And again, the main idea we're talking about today is God's amazing power. So here in turning the staff into a serpent, God demonstrates his power over matter. He turns Aaron's staff into a snake. Now, if you think about it, that's pretty amazing. I think I've heard this story so many times. I'm sure many of you have. It's kind of familiar. We know he's about to do this. But just think about what is actually happening. God just creates a life out of an inanimate object. This is a snake with a brain. It can move by itself, and he just creates it. I think that's pretty amazing. Maybe something we don't think about as much. I think a lot of these stories in the Bible are so familiar. You know, oh, yeah, he parted the Red Sea. Cool. No, that's a, this is an amazing thing, right? The point is God is showing to us his amazing power. And so hopefully, you know, may the, may the power of God never grow dim in our hearts. May we always be amazed by what he's doing here. But let's see how Pharaoh and his court respond in verse 11. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And so here in these verses, we see the start of two motifs that are going to be interwoven throughout this account of the plagues and the Red Sea. The first motif is the magicians, the magicians of Pharaoh. And what we're going to see as we read through the plagues is that every time the magicians attempt to recreate the acts that God is performing here. Now, these magicians, it's not like David Copperfield. They're, they're more like priests. 
They are practitioners of the Egyptian religion. They serve the Egyptian gods. And the word that is used there in the Bible is secret arts. In other translations, it, it's translated as enchantments, sometimes magic. Uh, magic was a, was a big thing in ancient Egyptian religion. They had spells for healing and spells for protection, spells for, for a good harvest, all that sort of thing. And so they're going to, you know, by their, by their magic, by their enchantments, recreate what God is doing. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us if this is just sleight of hand, kind of like card tricks and things like that, or if this really is like a spiritual demonic source of power, letting them do this. I've seen arguments for both. I don't know. Uh, But the point remains the same. These are religious priests who are trying to show that the Egyptian gods, little g gods, right? They're just as powerful as Yahweh. That's what they're trying to show here by, by recreating the signs. But we see quite the opposite in the passage in verse 12, because Aaron's staff swallows up the magician's staff. The point is that God's power is far greater, far greater than any other force, whether man-made, natural, spiritual, God is greater. His snake kills the other snakes. It's kind of like Ephesians 1.23 says, Christ is above all principalities, dominions, powers. God is greater. And God is revealing to us his glory by showing us his superior power in these passages. And that's going to be the pattern that we're going to see over and over again. God is going to do this amazing work. And these magicians are going to attempt to recreate the work, but they'll always do it in a lesser way. They'll always do it in a lesser way. And eventually by plague three, we're going to see they can't even do it at all. God is superior. And I think this serves as a great comfort and encouragement to us as believers, right? No matter what comes against us, persecution, natural disaster, spiritual attack, the power of the enemy, Jesus is greater than that. He's stronger than that. We, we do not need to fear because we can trust him. So that's motif number one, the magicians attempt but fail to recreate God's power. In, in these plagues. And intertwined with that is motif number two, which is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In response to every act of God's power we're, about to, we're about to see, there is a hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes the Bible says Pharaoh does this himself. Other times it says God does this. Other times it doesn't tell us who is actually doing the hardening. But after every plague, we see that Pharaoh refuses to humble himself. He refuses to yield, despite clear evidence that God is at work. Right, we're going to see in these plagues very, very clearly that something supernatural is happening here. God is at work. Pharaoh refuses to yield and let the people go. Now, there's a lot of debate about this, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It raises some difficult questions. Right? Does Pharaoh have a, a choice in this matter when it said that God hardened his heart? Is Pharaoh just some puppet? What, what does this really mean? And I, and I think when we come to difficult questions in the Bible, which there, there are many, you know, we can't shy away from them. We can't just choose what we want to think. What we think really doesn't matter. God is I am. He is who he is. We can't change that by what we think. So what we need to do is, is lean in, look into this, and, and see what, what is the Bible telling us. And we, and we can do so in confidence because we know that God is good. So what is going on with Pharaoh's heart? Well, there's a chart here that I think is helpful to take a look at. Um, this is a chrono- chronological look at every single verse in Exodus in which Pharaoh's heart being hardened is is mentioned. And you can see in the beginning, the first two, we saw the first one last week in 421. The Bible just says, I, this Yahweh is speaking, God is speaking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is just a declaration. It hasn't, not God saying that he, he's done it. It's just he will do it. A declaration that this is going to happen. God is a promise keeper. He does indeed do it. But at first it's just a declaration. The next ones, we just read this one in 713. It says Pharaoh's heart was hardened without saying who is doing the hardening. Was it God? Was it Pharaoh? We don't know. 
As we go along further, the first time we see credit given in the scripture is in 8.15, where Pharaoh hardens his heart himself. He does that a couple more times. And then the first time we see God hardening it is in 9.12, a little later in the story. And then you can see by the end, as we get into chapter 10, 11, almost every single time it says God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. So what do we make of this is the question, right? Well, Pharaoh is being judged by God here. This is a judicial hardening because Pharaoh's heart was already hard towards the thing of God before, before Moses even shows up. I mean, think about it. He's living in opulent wealth while enslaving an entire nation to, to give him that wealth. He is the man at the helm of a religion who's worshiping pagan gods and practicing this these secret arts, whatever those are. He's already hard toward the things of God. It wasn't like he was just this amazing guy and then Moses shows up and all of a sudden he becomes a jerk. He is already against God, living in sin unrepentantly. Interestingly, a lot of times you see the word harden in our English Bibles. It comes from a word in Hebrew that means strengthened or firmed. So he strengthened his heart is the meaning. God, God strengthened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh strengthened Pharaoh's heart. So it seems to me that Pharaoh's heart was already against God and the events in this story, God's mighty displays of power only strengthened that position. They only pushed him further and further away. He wants nothing to do with God, no matter what God does or says. And and we may know people like this today, no matter how much evidence, no matter how many times you share the Bible with them, no matter how many times you share your testimony and what God is doing, they, they just want nothing to do with God, no matter what you say. And so when, Pharaoh, or when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, this is judgment on Pharaoh. He deserved it. We see this type of judgment elsewhere in the Bible, too. This isn't the only place. For example, um, when we talked about par- parables a while ago in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower, we saw that Jesus tells us he, he's using parables as a form of judgment. He is obscuring the truth from people who, who don't really care about the truth. They're just there for, for miracles. And so God, Jesus, speaks in in parables. We see this in Romans uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 21, another example. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All right, so here we see people who have clear evidence of, of God. They knew God, but they refused to follow God. And so God gives them up to their sin. In this case, sexual impurity. But God gives them up to their sin as a form of judgment. They are choosing to sin They are unrepentant in that. They know what God has to say and and just keep going. So rather than continue to reach out to them, God says, okay, have your sin. But but there's consequences to that, right? There's always consequences to sin. And that's what's happening to Pharaoh in this passage. He has heard the word of God. He sees clear evidence of God's power, but he refuses to listen. He refuses to turn and repent. So God says, okay, have your sin and, and divinely pushes him away, strengthening his heart more and more and more in his rebellion and resolve not to follow. Later in the book of Romans in chapter 9, this, this incident with Pharaoh and his heart is, 
is described directly, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, we saw this verse last week, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. See, God chose to harden Pharaoh that God might be glorified. That's the point. And what he's doing in, in this story of the Exodus and this story and example of Pharaoh is he's teaching us something too. We all deserve judgment, right? Every single one of us. God is perfectly just in hardening the hearts of whomever he wants because we all deserve to die for our sin. It's Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve this. And that's what verse 14 is talking about there, the very first verse. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, because God is totally just in everything he does. So this judgment against Pharaoh, this hardening of his heart, is a just thing. Verse 17, God raised up this man, Pharaoh. He orchestrated all of Egyptian history, all of Egyptian history, so that at this moment, the person on the throne would be this hard-hearted man, person totally uninterested in the things of God. Why? Why did God do this? To glorify himself, right? To glorify himself, so that God might show his power and that his whole name would be proclaimed throughout the earth. Interestingly, we see the opposite in the story we just looked at a little while ago with Jonah and Nineveh. Right? It's, it's kind of the opposite. God orchestrates all of Assyrian history so that the king of Assyria at that time would be a soft-hearted person, someone who would repent and one, would turn when, when presented with the word of God. In Jonah 3.6, we see him put on sackcloth and sit in the ashes. Different. Why, why did God do that? Is it because Nineveh deserved that? No. Nineveh deserved judgment too. They're just as wicked. So why did God do that? Same reason, to glorify himself. So that God might show his power and that his name may be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. See, the results of Egypt and Nineveh are are different, judgment and mercy. But the point is the same. In both instances, God is showing his total power over everything, history, just over everything. In one case, by his wrath towards the wicked. And as we're going to see in this story, he does not let the, the sins of the wicked go unpunished, but in the other case, by his mercy to those who turn from their sin, he has the power to save as well. So those are the two motifs we're going to see intertwined here. One, the magicians. Just as the magicians serve as an encouragement to us, God is more powerful than anything. We need not fear if we follow him and trust in him. So is Pharaoh a warning to us. God has the power to harden your heart and the right to harden your heart. So don't delay in coming to him. Don't push it off. Don't grow callous to the sin in your life, whether you are a believer today and you're struggling with certain sin patterns in your life, or if you've never turned from your sinful ways, never turned to Jesus, turn is the point. Turn is the point for we all deserve judgment and he has the power to judge and will. He's a promise keeper as well. But the great news for us is that he is also merciful. He alone has the power to save. That's the point. Because we see in the story, just as he has judgment on Pharaoh, he also delivers Israel. Israel didn't deserve it either, but God saves them. So our response should be, we turn to Jesus. We don't harden ourselves. And so we're going to look at the 10 plagues now, and we're going to see just how these motifs interwine and point to this more and more, that God is above all things, that there is no power like his, no power comparable. He is above 
all, and so we need to submit in response. So let's, let's take a look at how this plays out in the first plague, starting in Exodus 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, strengthened again. Pharaoh's heart is, actually this one means heavy. Pharaoh's heart is heavy. He refused to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. In the next verse, we see this happen. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And there's a couple more verses to finish this part. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So here we see it, right? The two inter intertwining motifs. God gives this amazing display of power, turns all the water in the land to blood. But the magicians do the same thing. They turn water into blood somehow. But we see that God's power is still maintained as superior. They're doing this in a lesser way because the magicians can create the blood. They can't take it away. Right? If they had that power, they would just fix the Nile. But they don't because they can't. God's power is stronger. They can't reverse it. And... As we see, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He strengthens in his resolve not to yield, not to listen to God, despite the clear demonstration of God's power here. We're going to see the same thing again in the second plague, the frogs, in Exodus chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And after this, uh, uh, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh basically says, please get rid of the frogs and I'll let the people go. Again, the magicians can't remove the frogs. They can create them. They can't remove them. Their power is lesser. God's power is greater. And then we see this in the next couple of verses, starting in verse 12. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Again, the, we see it again, right? In response to God's amazing, amazing works, Pharaoh just continues in his ways. He does not submit. He does not yield. He is hardened. In the next plague, plague three, which is the gnats, uh, we see a break in the pattern starting in verse 16. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. That is a lot of gnats. A lot of gnats, again. The amazing power of God. The magicians tried. They tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now the magicians can't even do it. Can't even create a gnat. But God made all the sand in Egypt become gnats. And what's interesting here is that the magicians start to see some of the truth. They realize this is God, the finger of God, the one true God, not one of their false gods that they've been worshiping the living God. His power is far above. God is a promise keeper. This is exactly what he said he was going to do. By his power, his demonstration, all would glorify himself, that, that we would all know that there is no one like him. And the magicians, they seem to be starting to see that for the first time. But Pharaoh's heart is still hard. Though the magicians have some lights turning on, there is no going back for Pharaoh. Now, we're not going to read the rest of the plagues. These go on for quite a few chapters. I encourage you to do that, though. Um, there's a lot of really interesting detail that just keeps building on these points. Uh, but here's a chart that's going to summarize the rest of them, 1 through 10. And, and some observations I want to make. First, all these plagues in some way are designed to directly challenge and expose just the, the impotency of the, the gods of Egypt. For example, um, the first plague, Nile turning to blood, the Egyptian religion said that Osiris, one of their very important gods, his bloodstream was the Nile. So God destroys the Nile. And the point is, Osiris, why aren't you fixing this? This is your bloodstream. Now it's literally blood, I guess, but why aren't you fixing this? Frogs. There is an Egyptian god called Heket who is represented as a frog. And so God brings a bunch of frogs. Heket, why can't you tame these frogs and get rid of them? Apis, there is a male fertility god with the head of a bull. Hathor was the goddess of the sky, head of a cow. So God kills the livestock. Why didn't they help? Why didn't they save them? There were many gods in Egyptian religion related to the sun. Re, Ra, Amen, Re, and God just snuffs out the sun. And you could just imagine the, the Egyptians just crying out to their gods, please help, please help. Look at all these devastating things that are happening. This is in vain. Why? Because God's power is superior. That's the point. God is directly exposing that he's the only true God. He's the only one. Only he has the power to save Israel from these judgments. Would they just submit? But Pharaoh doesn't. Second observation, in most cases, not in every case, but in most cases, God gives warning before sending the plague. He warns Pharaoh in Egypt. For example, in in the seventh plague, hail, in verse uh, 919, Moses goes into Pharaoh and says, hail is coming. Make sure you put all the people, animals inside so they won't get hurt. Now, some people listen and do that. Some don't, and there's consequences for that. But God still warns them. Why? Why does God do that? Well, he's merciful. This points to his, his mercy. Like so much when we, when we read about the plagues, we think of judgment, and rightly so. This is judgment, but God also has the power to be merciful, too. And I've seen this in my own life. There has been many times before I was a believer where I heard the gospel and did not respond. God didn't have to continue pursuing me. 
Um, but he did. He kept warning me. He put me in positions where I can hear until finally, many, many years later, I, I submitted and I yielded finally. I'm very thankful for that because I, I deserve judgment. I deserved hardening. I deserved to just go further and further away for God, from God. But he was gracious to me. He was patient with me. He gave me warnings. And he does that too with, with Egypt, where we get through 10 plagues before the end. He's giving them warnings. He's gracious. And the last observation is, of course, every single time, without fail, Pharaoh hardens his heart. His rebellion is strengthened, and he refuses to yield, despite this clear, clear evidence. Even the magicians are telling him clear evidence that this is the finger of God. Such that even after the last plague in which all the Egyptian firstborn children are killed, Pharaoh remains hardened. At this point, God is hardening him. Now, after plague 10, he does agree to let the people go. That happens a couple of times. We saw it with the, with the frogs as well. So the people start to go. They, they plunder the Egyptians, as we saw last week. God promised that would happen. And they start heading to the Red Sea. But Pharaoh hardens himself one more time. And in the end, he ends up chasing with his chariots them down to the Red Sea. Now they're pinned, right? Israel's pinned against the sea. Where are they going to go? They become very afraid, which makes sense. And here's what we see happening in Exodus chapter 14. Starting in verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. It goes on in the next slide. I will, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And this is exactly, as many of us know, what happens exactly what happens, just as God says. In a final grand show of power, God parts the Red Sea. Again, imagine what this was like, standing there watching a whole sea open up. He parts the Red Sea. The the Israelites are able to walk on dry land. He mercifully saves them from their slavery in Egypt. And once they all pass through, God brings down the waters on Pharaoh and his men, and they're all killed. Not one remained, the Bible says, the final judgment for their hardness of heart and their sin. So we're going to end today at the very end of Exodus chapter 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. And God's objective is complete. By his judgment on Egypt and mercy and his mercy towards Israel, his name is made known just as he said it would be. Again, amazing story, right? Amazing demonstration of power, far beyond what we can comprehend. He is far above any deity, any ruler, any natural phenomenon. What is the application? What does this mean for us today? First, we need to submit to God. We need to submit to God, for he is above all things. His power is unmatched, and he has the power to judge. The wording of the hard heart of Pharaoh is something that we need to take very seriously in our lives. He refused to submit. He continued to to recklessly strengthen his position against God. And so God eventually said, okay, have your sin. 
and divinely pushed him away. You do not want that to happen to you. You do not want to become calloused in your view towards sin in your life. You do not want to become hard towards that. It can be really easy sometimes. We get into these patterns, these habits, and we think this isn't even so bad. But there's always consequences. There's always consequences to our sin. So what are some things you can do to prevent this? Well, I think the first thing is pray. Pray to God. Ask him for mercy. If if you feel yourself hardening in a certain area, don't ignore that. Don't let that go. Rather, pray and ask for God's help. If there's something you just, a sin you keep going back to again and again, ask God for help that he would soften your heart. Humble yourself. Don't be like Pharaoh. Humble yourselves. Turn to him. Submit. The second thing, stay in community that you may be encouraged. Stay in community so you can be encouraged to stay in step with God. Hebrews 3 tells us this in verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it, called, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. It is easy to fall into that. It's easy just to become so calloused to what we're doing against God. Sorry, God has given us community so that we can be encouraged and encourage each other to, to turn from our sin, to remember the truth, to stay in the truth, to soften our hearts, to get back on track when we fall, because we all fall. We all fall, and we need others to help us, other godly people to help us. So if you are struggling today with a hard heart in a certain area, reach out to another believer at church, talk to them, seek help, encourage each other, and pray. Ask for God's help, too, because he has the power to do that. So that's the first application. We need to submit to God, for he is above all things. His power is unmatched, and he has the power to judge. The second thing is exactly the same, but from a different angle. We need to submit to God, for he is above all things. His power is unmatched, and he has the power to save. He has the power to save. No one else can save us from our sins, but God can. He bestows mercy. I said it before, just as this passage is very clearly about the judgment of Pharaoh and God's judgment, it's also about God's mercy on Israel. When we look back at the plagues, when the flies come in plague four, God doesn't send any flies to where the Israels are. Not a single fly goes over there. When the livestock die in plague five, none of Israel's animals die. Plague seven, no hail falls on them. Plague nine, they're in a little ray of sunshine amidst all the darkness. Did Israel deserve that? No, they didn't deserve that. They deserve judgment too. They're also sinners, just like Pharaoh. They're not the good guys. I think sometimes we think Israel, Israelites in this story are the good guys, and, and Pharaoh's the bad guys. They're, they're all the bad guys. They're all against God. They're all in rebellion in some way. They all sin, just like us. We all sin too. And in a little bit, they're going to go worship a cow made out of gold, just like right after this, right after they see this amazing work of God. We'll talk about that next week, though. But the point is, they don't deserve this. They deserve judgment, but God is merciful because God has the power to bestow mercy. That's the point. And for Israel, in this case, God chose mercy. He has mercy on whoever he chooses and has the right to do that. He is a kind and gracious God. We, We skipped over it when we were talking about the plagues, but right before plague 10, the killing of the firstborn, we see the first Passover. We see the first Passover. God instructs the Israelites to kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts such that when the angel of the Lord comes through 
to, to kill the firstborns. He sees the blood and he passes over them. The lamb dies in the firstborn's place. Now, again, Israel deserved that judgment, but the lamb took the place, died in their place. And in the New Testament, we see that the Passover is symbolic of Jesus. It points us to Jesus. It makes us think of Jesus because we all deserve to die. We all deserve judgment too, but Christ died in our place. His blood covers us just as the blood of the lamb in the Passover covered the Israelites. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is called literally our Passover lamb. The connection is clear. John 1, 29, he is called the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So the wrath of God that we all deserve passes over us who forsake our sin, who humble ourselves and turn to Christ for mercy. Right? Those who do not harden themselves when presented with the truth of the gospel, maybe the uncomfortable truth of the gospel that we all deserve to die, but we yield. We yield. Praise God that he gives us that. And we see just as God in this story saves Israel from their slavery to Egypt, Jesus saves us from slavery to sin because he's merciful and he alone has the power to do that. None of us can do that. None of us are enough, but Jesus is. So I encourage you today, take the power of God seriously in your life because it is real. These, these are real stories. He really did all of that. He is far above anything else. No force can stand up to him. And he alone deserves to be on the throne. He alone deserves to be worshipped. And there are consequences for those who refuse, who do not submit, who harden themselves and do not yield. But there is mercy for those who do. So I encourage us all, submit to him, turn from our sins, and let's seek his mercy, for he is powerful to give it. So let's pray. God, thank you for um, this reminder and this uh, very vivid image of what we deserve and what you've saved us from. And just the hardening of our hearts, the consequences of our sin, death. Thank you for Jesus, that his blood covers that from us, that we will, for those who turn to, to him, will, will not taste the wrath of God, your wrath. Rather, we, will, we are forgiven. And, and we get to know you and be in relationship with you. And we get to worship you. So thank you, God, so much for your mercy. I pray, Lord, for, for each and every one of us where there are calloused bits of our hearts, I pray that you would point that out and you would help us to, to turn from that. Give us a, a godly grief about that, Lord, so that we may truly repent and truly turn to you and truly follow you. So thank you so much, Lord, for your, for your mercy, for this story, and for who you are. We praise you in your name. Amen.